All right, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for this day on which we celebrate the resurrection of your Son. We especially praise you for the gift of the incarnation of your Son and the revelation of his presence in our midst. We ask that our eyes may be continually enlightened by the celebration of your sacraments and by the study of your word, that we may learn to see you in all things and trust you more and more. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so a couple of news items from me and then from Father Edward. Uh, We have a couple of people absent today with back trouble. Um, Kevin O'Brien and Alex Soley. Both were hoping to be here today, but Alex is actually having surgery uh, soon. He thinks it'll be having soon. Yeah, all right. Uh, so remember them, please. Um, other than that, I, I don't think I have any other announcements, but I know Father Edward does, so I'll turn it over yes, to him okay. now. Thank you. Um, in this fall, we had an omelette work day on a Saturday, and it seemed to be well received. We got a lot of help and a lot of things taken care of. Anyway, we're planning another follow-up on Lake Day. The date's not exactly set yet, but it would be one of the last two Saturdays in February, either the 17th or the 24th. Um, because of the weather, it's planned that it would be more to fix up and clean up and things on the inside of buildings, rather than work that was done on the outside on the property. We don't want people to freeze. He's <laughs> <laughs> not typical. Put the heat on the building. And once we get the date specified on the 17th to 24th, matching against the calendar for the community, then I will be in touch and let you all know. There's plenty of times we can plan for you. Thank you. Thank you. More than my radio. As we did last time, the work is in the morning, after starting after terse, and then the work period through 1230, and then uh, we have sex in church together, and then we have a meal together. We eat together. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm hoping this works out well because uh, January and February are times when, on the whole, people don't come to Chicago to visit. And so our guest house is not as busy as it normally is. So that's normally when we schedule uh, sort of the deeper cleaning, you know, cleaning behind the couch, cleaning the windows, the fans, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so we thought it would be really a, a nice opportunity to uh, uh, work with, with all of you or whoever can make it. So. That's part of the, the thinking too. Uh, so I wanted to continue today uh, with a topic I started on two months ago, which is the Gospel of John. And uh, a couple months ago, we talked about the prologue. And then last month, I took a little time away and did the O antiphons. But I'd like to continue today uh, with an introduction to the Book of Signs, it's called. And then just start working our way through the different stories as we find them in the gospel. The first, uh, an introduction to the book of signs. Uh, if you remember, the, the gospel of John is divided into either three or four parts. There's a prologue uh, in which we hear about the word of God becoming flesh and John bearing witness to him. This is followed by what's called the book of signs. And it is crafted around seven signs that our Lord Uh, works, the changing of water into wine at Cana, 
uh, the healing of the official's son, the healing of the man at the pool in Bethsaida, the feeding of the 4,000 by the Lake of Galilee, walking on the water, the healing of the man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus. If these sound familiar, it's because they show up in cycle A of the lectionary during Lent. And if you are in a parish where there are persons being prepared for confirmation or baptism, uh, they also show up, you can use them any year. They are ancient uh, stories, very useful for catechesis having to do with baptism. Um, So those are the seven signs. Some people say that the eighth sign is Christ's crucifixion. Uh, and uh, this would then be tied to the seven first signs are parallel to the seven days of creation, and the eighth sign is the inaugural of the eighth day. Uh, The eighth day is very important symbolism in the early church. It's one I think we do really well to reappropriate for ourselves, but the seven days indicates the fullness of this creation. The eighth day is the new creation. It's the new heaven and earth, the new dispensation, the new age. Uh, remember uh, Sister Diane Burgant giving a talk here almost 20 years ago now. And uh, she said, uh, you know, the people who talk about the new age today, they, they're late by 2,000 years. <laughs> the new age has already been, the final age has already been inaugurated with Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Um, so that's possible. It's, it's hard to say whether uh, the evangelist John intended this. Certainly the seven signs he intended because that's an important number of fullness. Um, and uh, so these first seven signs take us up through chapter 11. And then the, the next large section of the book is called the book of glory. And this, uh, there's a turning point Uh, In chapter 12, the Greeks seek out Jesus and ask uh, to meet him. And this uh, approach of the Gentiles toward the Son of Man is the sign that all things have been accomplished. It is Christ's hour. He's frequently talking about his hour in this book. And uh, what he means by this is his crucifixion. And uh, John's understanding of the crucifixion is quite interesting compared to the uh, synoptics. I'll go into more detail when we get there. Uh, But for John, in some sense, the crucifixion and the ascension are the same mystery because Christ is lifted up on the cross and this is sort of the first step on his way back to the Father. And so it's it's looking at Christ on the cross is sort of of one piece of looking at Christ in glory, okay? So it's it's a kind of upside down imagery and at the same time very beautiful because... um, it, it collapses uh, these events in a very helpful way. Uh, so, but we'll, we'll cover that at some point in the future. Uh, then some people uh, will add a fourth part. The last chapter of the gospel sometimes is called the epilogue. Uh, it seems like it's possibly written by a different author. The, the style's a little bit different. Um, it's, uh, there seems to be a conclusion at the end of chapter 20. Uh, the author says... Uh, Jesus worked many more signs than the ones I'm telling you about, but I've chosen these so that you'll believe. Okay, and so it seems like we're done. And then suddenly the uh, St. Peter's going out fishing. (laughs) And so uh, some see this as an epilogue um, to sort of tie up some some, uh, loose ends from the, the early part of the gospel. 
Um, I, I didn't talk too much last time about the, the process by which the gospel was written, but it might be worth saying a little bit about that now. So traditionally, this gospel is attributed to the Apostle John, though he never names himself in the, in the gospel. Um, rather, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. And so traditionally, we've seen the Apostle John as the beloved disciple. There are some contemporary theories that see these, and there were some in the early church who see these as two different persons. Um, I don't think it matters too much uh, how we look at that. I will just refer to him as John and assume that they're one and the same person for the purposes of our, uh, of our study together. Uh, but it's also traditionally thought of as the last gospel. It's the final one to be written. And modern scholarship tends to corroborate this. Though the sources, what we're discovering is that the sources are quite ancient. So whoever wrote this, um, he, first of all, he has better knowledge of the geography of Jerusalem than any of the other uh, evangelists. Um, he seems to know better than the others sort of the inner workings of the Sanhedrin. And uh, he says of himself that he's a relative of the high priest. And that's why he gets to go and witness the trial of Jesus. And he tries to sneak Peter in, but Peter, you know, he, he chickens out and runs away. Uh, but the beloved disciple goes right up to the cross with, uh, with our Lord and uh, is there with Mary. Uh, so the, the author either was there, as he says, or he has access to very, very early traditions that are very accurate. Uh, there are really, really interesting things about the names of people. He names a lot of people. Uh, and uh, modern scholarship looking at inscriptions in the Holy Land has corroborated that these are names. Uh, so the name Nicodemus, for example, uh, was long thought to have been just kind of made up or symbolic or something, but actually we now know that it was a common name at the time. And that uh, it was an especially common name in a, in a family uh, that was of the priestly class. <laughs> okay, so, so there seems to be a lot of accurate and ancient knowledge in this gospel. At the same time, it's very clear that the author takes great pains. He took a long time thinking about and praying over this. The theology of this gospel is incredibly profound, uh, as, are the, as is the, the artistry. And so one of the things, uh, very much like St. Mark, St. John likes to use a lot of irony or, or sort of confusion over double meanings of words. And in my opinion, the reason that these two authors use irony uh, is to force us to make a decision for Christ, okay? So for instance, let me use Mark as an example. A famous instance. So some people say Mark's gospel is very early and there wasn't a very high Christology at the early part of the church, meaning Christ was seen more as a man. And then by the time we get to John, the late gospel, now he's seen as God. Um, I don't agree with this. I think, uh, for example, Mark's gospel just starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. <laughs> and then John says, you know, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming really soon. And what happens? Jesus of Nazareth arrives. Okay, so to me, it's pretty clear that from the beginning, Mark sees Christ as the son of God. But when our Lord is approached by the rich young man in Mark's gospel, uh, he, he addresses Jesus as good master. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. And many contemporary uh, exegetes or scholars of this will say, aha, you see, uh, even Jesus himself didn't think he was God. 
right? Why do you say I'm good? Well, but he didn't say that. He just asked a question. And, and, the, and it's, it's significant that the rich young man didn't answer it and didn't get it. If he would have thought for a second, thought, oh, who do I think this person is? What do I think of this man? Um, but he doesn't follow it up. And in fact, when our Lord invites him to follow him, leave everything, he can't do it. So we see that this sort of double meaning or these ambiguities are left in the text because it's an invitation to those hearing to make a decision for the Lord and to understand who he is by, by making an act of faith. And we see a similar thing. We'll probably get to Nicodemus today. Uh, poor Nicodemus uh, misinterprets everything Jesus says. <laughs> and it, it's, it's in part, you know, an illustration of uh, the, the difficulties of, of signing on to this new way in which God is acting uh, among his people. So, uh, so there was this long gestation period where John, uh, and again, traditionally, there are images of him uh, at his home in Ephesus with the Virgin Mary. Uh, we see at the end of the gospel that Jesus entrusts them to each other. The two of them meditating on what has happened over many years, coming up with just the right terms, just the right way of explaining things. And then the gospel is published, as it were, somewhere maybe about 80, 90, somewhere in that range is my, my best guess. Um, but very quickly, there are misinterpretations of, of the book. Uh, and you, you've probably heard about Gnosticism. It's kind of a big deal these days. It's a very broadly understood uh, sort of Greek and Eastern phenomenon uh, where we're saved by having some kind of esoteric knowledge, okay? And there are aspects of John's gospel that seem to lend themselves to a Gnostic interpretation. Um, and so what happens is in John's letters, we get certain correctives, we get certain sort of amplifications of ideas in the gospel to make sure that, that people understand. So for instance, there's the very famous opening of John's first letter, you know, uh, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched, uh, what, uh, you know, this was the word of God. So there's no mistaking that our Lord came in the flesh. Okay, they saw him, they touched him. Um, and he's not just some kind of idea glorified or uh, some pretend ghost of a person or something <clears throat> like that. So if this epilogue, this last chapter is uh, a later edition, it could be very well by the same author. And it could be again to really emphasize the fact that our Lord is in the body after the resurrection because one of the things he does uh, which he, this is a story kind of shares with Luke's gospel, is Jesus eats with the disciples after the resurrection. He, he actually cooks them breakfast, right? Breakfast of fish, it wouldn't be my first choice for breakfast. <laughs> but, uh, um, the, the point is that they can eat together even after the resurrection. Our Lord's body is a real body. It's not uh, a pretend thing. So one of the... Uh, understandings of the last chapter plus the letters of John is, uh, and this goes back to the early years of the church again, is that there was a certain pressure, a certain misunderstanding of some of the difficult concepts that John is putting in his gospel. So he or someone who was a part of his school 
adds this last chapter, adds these letters to make sure uh, that the gospel is understood correctly. Uh, so whether or not you want to consider the epilogue a separate section, you know, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. I just want you to be aware that the, uh, there, there is reason to suspect it's a little different than the rest of the gospel. But we're going to talk about the book of signs today. It's called the book of signs because, again, uh, the author uses this word, a Greek word, semeon, to describe these things that Jesus does. And uh, it's a different word than what the synoptics use. The synoptics tend to use the word uh, for wonders or miracles. And uh, usually when we talk about these things, we say miracles, right? We say like miracle, the raising of Lazarus. Uh, so why does John call it a sign? John calls these signs because, again, he, he wants to challenge us to see the meaning behind it. So a sign, uh, today we have a whole uh, discipline of uh, semiotics, which is uh, sort of a, a, the, the, real, <laughs> the real academic discipline that, that uh, uh, Dan Brown tried to make up with symbology, which, was, which is not an academic discipline. The semiotics is really what we're talking about. And it's the study of signs, the study of symbols, okay? Symbols always uh, stand for something beyond what, they, what you can actually see. So, for example, uh, it's important that people who live together have some sense of themselves as part of a whole. So, for example, in most countries, let's take the United States where we happen to be right now, uh, it's important for us to have some kind of common feeling of ourselves as citizens of one country. And so... Uh, we have signs. We can't actually see everybody at once. All, we can't get all the Americans in one place and see them and say like, oh yeah, this is my country. So instead we have signs like a flag. So when we show a flag, this is why this is such an explosive thing uh, in football these days. Um, the, the flag is supposed to stand for our country in some sense or other. And so uh, if we want to be good citizens or want to indicate that we're good citizens, perhaps there's something about uh, showing respect for these symbols. Um, but, but these could be all kinds of things. Another example would be a stop sign. Uh, you know, the stop sign doesn't, it's just a, it's a bunch of markings in red and, and white on an on a, uh, octagon, okay? But we know from being taught letters and being taught what street, street signs mean that this represents an idea that I have to come to a halt and let the people going the other way go first, right? So uh, there's a, a complex idea behind the sign. Uh, the sign itself doesn't, you know, the, the, the stop sign doesn't stop us. We have to understand, we have to have uh, insight into what it means, and then we stop the car, right? So, so it's, it's a conceptual idea. Similarly, when our Lord works these signs, it's not simply that uh, he's trying to do good for, for a handful of people or something like that. He's trying to teach us something behind what the sign is. So, uh, you know, one, Lazarus might be the easiest example. Anytime our Lord raises someone from the dead in the Gospels, it's obviously an impressive thing, and it's, uh, it's a great 
relief for the family of the person who had died, etc. But the person's going to die again. Okay, Lazarus died a second time. You see, there are a few people who have that distinction, I guess. Um, so, and, and not only that, but our Lord was warned that he was going to die. Right? Uh, his, his disciples said, we, we've got word that Lazarus is ill. And uh, the Lord basically said, well, we'll wait. And he let him die. But that was so that he could raise him from the dead because he wants to demonstrate who he is, uh, what his incarnation accomplishes. So Lazarus raising is both a real event. This guy really did come back from the dead after four days in the tomb. But it also symbolizes something, which is uh, all of us are going to be raised from the tomb. And this is going to be uh, not just a resuscitation of our bodies, but a true recreation of our bodies uh, in a glorified state. Um, it's significant too, for example, that uh, this sign that our Lord worked provokes opposition. Okay, so just as I said about Mark's gospel, there are these sayings in Mark's gospel that provoke us to a decision, either for or against Christ. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, we find out that many Pharisees were quite upset about this and decided to put Jesus and Lazarus to death. Okay, so instead of understanding the sign as God breaking into the world, bringing the good news, offering us the resurrection, uh, it's, the gift is refused and the, the, the sign can't be seen for whatever reason. Okay, so there's always this danger that we won't see the signs, right? So these are all so the ideas that John uh, is trying to put before us in using the word sign. Um, so again, another nuance of this is not so much that our Lord uh, sort of breaks the laws of nature or something like that. We just heard a wonderful reading this morning at vigils. Uh, we've been reading the story of Noah. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we start with Genesis uh, on the even years. And uh, we're in chapter 10 tomorrow. And so uh, we had an essay at vigils by uh, Cardinal Danielu, who uh, was talking about how uh, the bow, the rainbow is a sign it's a sign of the covenant that God made with all creation that he wouldn't break the rules, you know, that uh, the, the, the laws of physics will hold. He, he guarantees that, okay? Um, now, God is sovereign over those laws and he, he can break them if he so chooses. He, he's the one who instituted them, we did not. They're for our benefit because we, we can actually make predictions about the world and we can uh, make use of heat to uh, cook our food and so on. Um, we can make use of cold to store our food and all kinds of things we can do once we understand the laws of nature. And if they changed all the time, life would be very scary and difficult, right? So God guarantees that. Um, but if he so chooses, he can raise people from the dead uh, he can change water into wine. Uh, God can, he can create anything he wants at any time. Uh, the spirit blows where he will, where he wills. Um, and, but God will only do this to invite us to conversion. It's not a power play on his part, which is sometimes seen to be. There's only one sense in which it is. And that is it's 
uh, sovereignty over evil. So for instance, is walking on the water, part of the symbolism of that is that God is more powerful than the forces of chaos, which are normally symbolized by the waves uh, of large bodies of water. Okay, uh, the water dragon, as it were, Leviathan. Uh, our Lord is completely unconcerned about the powers of evil in that sense. He just walks on their heads. Yeah. So um, these interruptions, these overrulings of the laws of nature, uh, it isn't God just uh, doing something so that we say, wow, that's incredible. But, but it's to show us who he is, and especially, more importantly, to show who Jesus Christ is. Okay, uh, he, he is God's son. Uh, he is the Lord of the universe. Um, it's significant that several times in John's gospel, the Lord says, I am, <laughs> which is God's name in the Old Testament. All right. Um, and, uh, you know, when he's arrested, uh, he, he asks, uh, who have you come for? And the soldiers say, we've come for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they fall over <laughs> to hear the, the name of God. And it's, you know, uh, so they, in, in a way, they witness to God's presence in Christ. But, but again, for whatever reason, they don't see it. It's like their bodies respond, but their minds don't. Um, so let's go to the first sign. Any questions about any of that, first of all? Yeah. Just curious, do you think that there's a connection between the importance of seeing signs and all the themes of light? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, sight is a big deal for John. And going right to the prologue again, you know, uh, the true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Um, we saw his glory. And when we say we saw his glory, what John means again, and this is tricky, he means this. So when we look at Christ crucified on the cross, we're seeing the glory of God. Um, and yes, the, the images of light that are so pronounced in John's gospel are both literal, that we need light to see with our eyes, but also metaphorical in the sense that we want to be illuminated in our minds and understand what's being shown us in these signs. So again, we can look at this and say, oh, this is, this is a total failure, right? I mean... Or we can look at this and say it's the glory of God. And that, that requires us to be enlightened in our minds. I'm asking because I'm, I'm trying to connect it to the sources, say, the Desert Fathers, where mm -hmm. they, you know, they talk about the illumination of the heart, the mm -hmm. guarding of the heart. Is there a connection there? Prob probably, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that as a homework problem for you. <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know if you get this. Do you do physics? Right. Uh, computer, science. computer science, okay. I know when I was studying mathematics, uh, though, you'd have these long proofs of this or that or the other thing, and then there'd be some lemma that the, the teacher would say, and that's your homework, is to uh, <laughs> prove that lemma there, uh, sort of a side proof. Uh, okay, so uh, chapter two of John's Gospel. On the third day, uh, this is the third day after Jesus is revealed by John the Baptist. And we see that actually this imagery of the uh, seven days of creation is played out in this very first week of Christ's ministry. Um, that his calling of the disciples, which Father Brendan was talking about this morning, so we actually heard from chapter one of John's gospel. Uh, this calling of the disciples is a kind of recreation of Israel, okay, in, in seven days. 
The seven-day imagery is, is all over the Old Testament. Uh, we, we think of it namely as the uh, Genesis 1, the days of creation, but it's important to know that uh, it took seven days to consecrate the temple. Okay, so the temple is a place from which God is constantly recreating the universe. Um, and so um, this reconstitution of the new Israel takes seven days. And on the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So a few other things about this. Uh, a marriage. It's not said who the marriage, uh, who's getting married. That our Lord was there suggests it was a kinsman of some, uh, uh, you know, some distance. Uh, it was pretty typical in those days that it would be the extended family that would be at a wedding. Uh, though it's possible that uh, it's not a relation. The fact that his mother's there, again, suggests more strongly that it's a, a family affair of some kind. Uh, our Lord's mother is not named in John's gospel. This is quite interesting. Uh, and we're going to hear our Lord refers to her as woman. Uh, and and that's, that's important, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so we'll, let's get there, though. So two of them are there. And uh, Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. Uh, when the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, so presumably uh, our lady knows that Jesus could do something about this, even though Again, in the ancient world, you, you can't just get in the car and, and drive to Mariano's and pick up some jugs of, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, Carlo Rossi or whatever. <laughs> um, if, if there's no wine, you're, it's really embarrassing for the family. And, um, and Cana, we're not quite sure where it was, but it was clearly a very small town and probably it was all the wine they had in the town. Uh, for the wedding. Uh, so Our Lady is, is seeking a sign, as it were, uh, without actually asking for it, just, just pointing out there's no wine. And Jesus says, you know, my hour has not yet come. So, uh, you know, the, the, this, this eighth sign is not ready yet. Uh, and uh, what have you to do with me? It's an interesting phrase. It's from an Old Testament idiom in Hebrew, uh, literally it's a, what to me and what to you. So, you know, do we have common interest on this or is, you know, is this my concern or is it yours? Uh, kind of thing. Now, why I've already indicated that uh, we have this interesting uh, invocation of Our Lady as woman. Uh, as early as St. Irenaeus uh, in around the year 200, <coughs> we have uh, this theme of recapitulation. And what this means is that the things that happen in the Old Testament in the New are redone correctly this time instead of in a fallen way, okay? And principle in this are two images. One is Christ as the new Adam, which St. Paul uses in uh, chapter five of Romans. And the second is Mary as the new Eve, okay? And uh, until Adam actually names Eve, at the very, in the very last verse of chapter 3 of Genesis, 
uh, she's created in, in chapter two, uh, she is simply called the woman, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, so this is an indication that our Lord is looking at his mother as the new Eve, uh, the new woman who will be the mother of all the living, as Eve was called, uh, but her who sort of fixes Eve's flaw, right? So Eve, uh, the, I'm going to pull from other gospels now. Eve listened to the serpent and fell. Our lady listened to Gabriel and the world was redeemed, okay? So both of them uh, have this, in this case, it's a question of hearing and obeying. Um, let's see, is there anything else I wanna say about that? That's the principal thing. Uh, Our Lady will reappear at the crucifixion where she's also called woman, all right? And uh, uh, John, the beloved disciple, is sort of the new, uh, son, you know, the new offspring, as it were, who uh, will be uh, the sign of faith for all those who will be uh, part of the church. <clears throat> okay. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, good thing to remember. Uh, listen to what Our Lady says and do whatever our Lord tells you. Now, six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Uh, so these are big jars. Uh, and um, it's interesting, this purification, uh, these rites are not clearly specified in the Old Testament, but they uh, became part of what was to become rabbinical Judaism. And they are kind of the precursors of baptism. So when John the Baptist appears and begins baptizing, these rites of purification are part of the background of that. There certainly, there are uh, purifications that take place in the Old Testament, but they tend to take place around sacrifice rather than around water. Uh, so usually someone is purified, for example, by uh, being touched by the uh, blood of a sacrifice or by the ashes of a sacrifice that's been consumed, okay? Uh, but in this case, uh, we have washing that's going on. So in any case, this is connected in some way to the, the cult of the Jewish people at this time. And uh, probably what needed to happen is that uh, before people could participate in the feast, they had to wash their feet and hands. And uh, in fact, um, in the rule of St. Benedict, uh, the abbot and the brothers are supposed to wash the feet and the hands of all the guests. Uh, because of cultural norms in our world, we don't do this. Um, we, we do it one, one day a year, and that is on Holy Thursday. So, um, and okay. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, so both psychologically interesting and uh, a sign. So um, as I say, psychologically um, 
I'm sure we're all aware of, you know, uh, how these things work. Um, just practically speaking, when people are sober and beginning the feast and are actually going to pay attention to the wine tastes, you want to have the better wine, right? But once people have drunk a little bit and they're not really paying attention <laughs> as much, you know, a little lower grade is not so bad. And, um, I mean, you'd hate to think that you'd take your really good, expensive wine and serve it to people who can't appreciate it, I guess. Maybe there's a better way to put it. Um, so, for instance, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a person who knows wine. So, you know, every so often someone gives us a really expensive bottle of wine. And I, I try to appreciate it, but I, it's, it's not really my thing. So, um, but in terms of the sign value, this is really important. You know, how many of us have, have thought like, oh, gosh, if we could just go back to the early church where things were really pristine and good and, you know, uh, you know, they knew the Lord and they were, had the fresh teachings and all this. And uh, this kind of flies in the face of that. It's, it says, actually, you know, in, in the mysterious workings out of salvation, uh, our Lord saves the good wine for the end. Uh, that he, he fills things more and more. Uh, and in fact, you know, our, our, there are some ways to look at this, say the development of the liturgy, the development of theology, the development of moral theology, development of politics. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of debate these days about uh, questions of equality, political <clears throat> correctness, et cetera, et cetera. There's a certain impulse in this that's really good. It says, you know, that people are of equal value, okay? Uh, it doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. Uh, people are of equal value. Now, this, can, this gets distorted in our political discourse, but the roots of this are actually in uh, the Christian revelation. In, say, in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks about this. We're all one in Christ, right? There's no male and female even, he, he goes so far to say. Um, and uh, these ideas come, this is an outgrowth of the development of the church's doctrine, the development of the church's practice of, uh, again, it doesn't mean that everybody's the same, uh, but it does mean that, that uh, you know, slavery is something to be avoided when we can do it, right, for example. So uh, in the abolition of slavery in England and in the United States in the 19th century, uh, it's largely driven by believing Christians, okay? Uh, this was especially the case in England. And, uh, and they didn't have to fight a war to end slavery there. Um, you know, the dignity of women is something that, in my opinion, is an outgrowth of the gospel. And uh, so what I'm saying is um, there's a lot of gloom and doom and anxiety about the church these days. <laughs> and... Um, there's this temptation to think like, if only I had known the apostles. Well, we do. We're with them every time we're at the liturgy. They're there. Uh, we can talk to them. We can call upon them. Uh, it may very well be that the best wine is yet to come, you know, and it's a matter of us having the eyes to see it and, and to watch for it and learn how to read the signs. Okay. Um, so, uh, you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did it at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So another thing about this symbol of changing the water into wine, that's important. There are two other things I want to say about this story before we move on. 
The first is, so these are the Jewish purification rites turned into a sign of the eschatological banquet, right? So we go from the old law to the era of grace and grace overflowing, you know, 150 gallons of wine. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. How many guests were there? <laughs> it doesn't say. It doesn't say, but it's a lot of wine. Um, you know, these are big jugs. And uh, this is, and, and the size of this is a sign of the, the kind of superabundance that grace represents. Grace, uh, unfortunately, we have a tendency to, th- this used to be a a bigger problem, I think, in the Catholic Church. There was a kind of quantification of grace. So my mother likes to say, when she was a kid, they used to talk about, sort of jokingly, you know, sort of building up grace points. Like, if you get enough grace, then it can balance off the, the bad things you do and that sort of thing. But in fact, grace is simply a participation in the life of God. And so any participation in God's life already has, of its nature, kind of inf- infinitude, right? There is, uh, God. God's not limited. You, God's not... You can't partition God into quantities. So this sign of the overflowing of wine is the overflowing of the Holy Spirit into creation, into our hearts, into our minds, and the limitlessness of uh, our knowledge of God. Uh, the, the, another image we came upon recently, Gregory of Nyssa um, said that perfection, uh, the nature of perfection is to continue becoming more perfect. And there's no limit to it because perfection would be union with God. And there's always more to know about God. So there's no, uh, heaven will be one long march into infinity. <laughs> and and uh, knowing more and more and more and more about God and about each other and about God's works and his creations, his creatures. Uh, so that's the first thing that the, the new age is being inaugurated even before the crucifixion. So even before it's Christ's hour, uh, the, the manifest abundance of God is given in sign. The second thing is that it is significant that this is a wedding. And in chapter three, we're going to hear uh, John the Baptist uh, make his exit after he's done his work. And uh, he says of himself, uh, I'm just the best man. I'm not the bridegroom, so I must decrease. The person who's important is Christ. And so uh, this is why, you know, uh, John is always shown pointing to Christ. Like, don't look at me, look at him. And, uh, but it's significant that he speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom, okay? Now, um, this wedding is not our Lord's wedding. He didn't get married in that sense. But that this takes place at a, a wedding is symbolic again, because the image of marriage is quite central to the uh, understanding of God's relationship with Israel throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Okay, so um, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of Israel as God's bride. Uh, the prophet Hosea has to marry uh, an unfaithful woman who symbolizes Israel's infidelity to God. Um, and then uh, he coaxes her back home and they, they patch things up. And this is a sign that God is... It hasn't given up on Israel, etc. So this uh, this wedding is the the final uh, nuptial union between God and humankind. Okay, and and uh, again, this 
This takes place, it's understood in several ways. One is that in Jesus Christ, we have both the human and the divine in, in one flesh, as it were. Um, but also it's in, say, Paul's letter to the Ephesians again, which I've already quoted a few times today, that uh, the church is Christ's bride. And uh, he uses very elaborate symbolism of marriage. that say the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The husband should sacrifice himself for his wife just as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. The wife should love her husband just as the church should love Christ. Okay, so he speaks of a great mystery, he says. By the way, mystery would be a great uh, uh, synonym for sign, uh, the way John uses it. So that this takes place at a marriage is not insignificant. It's not unsigning, <laughs> right? Uh, it, it actually communicate something about who Christ is and what's going on at this moment. Okay, so after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brethren and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Um, I'll just, uh, I'm using the RSV, Catholic edition, and uh, not sure if you're aware of this, but so the RSV was translated by a group of scholars in the 50s, I think, and uh, there were some Catholics who were part of the project, but um, uh, then after that, there, there came out a Catholic version of the RSV in which there are maybe 30 slight alterations to the text. In this case, um, uh, the word brethren gets a footnote uh, to indicate that these are cousins of Jesus and not actual sort of half-brothers because... There, there's a dispute between Catholics and Protestants about whether Mary went, went on to have more children, right? And so um, I just noticed that here. We have this footnote. Anytime brethren, Jesus' brethren shows up, um, it gets the same footnote in the Catholic version. Uh, any questions about the wedding at Cana before we go on to a couple other things? Yeah. Um, you mentioned of perfection mm -hmm. and your definition of it. Um, it's actually Gregory's, but that's all right. Sorry. It's actually Gregory of Nyssa's definition. But Gregory I, of Nyssa? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it's, just, it's just really, it, that's not small. Mm -hmm. um, static ideas of perfection are what get us into trouble. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. When we try to compare ourselves to a static idea of like an unchanging state of something mm -hmm. um, and try to hold ourselves to it, it's disastrous. Um, uh -huh. It's the essence of what in psychology, in trauma psychology, we call moral injury. Uh -huh. When one does something that falls utterly short of a, per, of a, of a sense of a perfected standard. Mm -hmm. And the difference between that, that felt difference can be quite, mm -hmm. well, quite profound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think it's an important image because uh, I, to me, it's really important that we, we desire to get to heaven. And not just because we don't, we just think the alternative is, is really rotten, you know, because unfortunately, I think a lot of people have this idea of heaven as, uh, you know, there's several sort of problematic images. One is, you know, we're sort of sitting on a, on a cloud with a harp that we don't really know how to play, <laughs> you know, like looking into the sky like, forever. Like joining, and, like joining a fresco and like being stuck. <laughs> it could be that, yeah. Uh, you know, another one is, is say the beatific vision is just, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, when you say, if you read Dante, you see that heaven is, is incredibly dynamic. 
and there's this constant celebrating. There's this dance that's going on. Uh, all the souls, they haven't been resurrected yet in Dante's uh, Paradiso, so they just exist as sort of points of light. But they're, they're zooming around and do, making all kinds of patterns and talking to each other and instructing and um, uh, celebrating what God has done. So it's important, I think, to have uh, an appealing idea of heaven, whatever it is, you know. Hopefully what we train ourselves to desire more and more exactly what heaven is so that we don't think that heaven is just, you know, commensurate with like a good day on earth. It's, it's something much greater than that. But yes, it is, it is both, uh, it's the harmonization and reconciliation of permanence and growth. <laughs> you know, in, in some mysterious way, they go hand in hand in heaven in a way that we can't experience them here unless we're mystics. And was Gregory's understanding that that kind of perfection as ongoing perfection, something mm -hmm. that is on this side of death? <clears throat> it begins here. It begins here. Yeah. Yeah. So we can never, in, in fact, um, uh, those of you who were at the, the talk the other night, I mentioned uh, the latest book by Alistair McIntyre. And he has a very beautiful sort of last three or four sentences. And the whole book is about um, sort of the political implications of desire and the ethical implications of desire. And he shows that in the last chapter that um, the, the most successful people, people we can point to and say they, they were really, they accomplished a lot, they were good people. You can't identify their success with any finite good that they accomplished. There's always something more they could have done if they would have lived longer, okay? And he said, uh, whatever this is, whatever this thing is beyond any finite good, I can't go into because that's, that, that's actually natural theology and I'm just an ethicist. <laughs> but I, you know, I'll sort of leave that to somebody else. But even in this life, we can see that there, there's no finite good or, that we can achieve where we'll feel like now we can stop. Right. There's, always, uh, there's always more to know. There's always more uh, to, to be done. And uh, so it's a great sign of hope, I think, that this can be done on, on the other side of the grave. But it does begin here. So yeah. what's important is not how much we accomplish, but the direction we're pointed in when we die. He, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fundamental option, I think, is what moral theologians call that. Yeah. All right. So let's go on to uh, any other questions about wedding at Cana, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's interesting that Jesus changes water to wine rather than just, say, creating wine in the jars. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I would say that's because uh, um, it, it's similar to what he says uh, in the synoptics when they, they gather up all the fragments of bread. You know, nothing's going to be wasted. Nothing is just sort of zapped out of existence, but it's, it's changed and its true significance is revealed from within. I think it's the same like with the Jewish law. The law was good, but now it's illuminated from within in a certain way that allows us to see how grace was intended to work in it and, and what, how to interpret it even though it's not binding on us as Gentiles. So, uh, so yes, the water's both preserved but transformed. Yeah. So good, thank you. Okay, so... Uh, the next thing that happens, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is one significant difference between John's gospel and the synoptics. Um, I think it's fairly safe to say that Mark's gospel was the first of the synoptics to be written. There's some, there are some uh, traditional 
Catholic exegetes who want to say that Matthews is the first, and that's that's possible. I, I think it's quite possible. Almost certainly, Luke was borrowing from both of them. <laughs> so, um, but uh, John is quite different. Mark's gospel is kind of breathless. It begins, Jesus shows up, goes right into battle. Uh, he's things are happening immediately. He's going from one place to the other to the next, and he goes up to Jerusalem once and is killed. And it's and boom, it's, it's uh, and then he's, and Mark's original manuscript doesn't even have a resurrection narrative, you know. Um, it's, it's a whirlwind. You can read Mark's gospel if you want in about, you know, 45 minutes or something. Um, so uh, it gives the impression of a very short ministry, very to the point. Um, John, though, has three different Passovers. And uh, so this is the first time that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And, uh, but he's going to go several other times, not only for Passover, but for other feasts as well. And this is where we get the traditional idea that Jesus' ministry lasted three years, is from John's gospel. Because the, the synoptics sort of give the impression that it was maybe a year at most. Um, and again, I would just say that uh, it, it's a curious thing. For most of the modern period, critical scholars of the Bible have assumed that the synoptics are historically more accurate. Uh, but now more and more uh, people are challenging that. And it, it's a curious thing because there is a kind of verisimilitude of, of the, in the synoptics that it's told like a story, whereas John's gospel has much more meditation and theology. Jesus gives these long discourses and so on. And so it was thought, well, this is obviously the product of theological imagination and so on. Uh, I'm not so sure, you know. Uh, again, the, the, um, the ways in which uh, our Lord acts and, and, and the sort of slower unfolding of his ministry seems to have a lot to say for it. Um, so in any case, he's going up to Jerusalem and um, in the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business and making a whip of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and oxen out of the temple. <clears throat> and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Okay, so this is a famous story. Uh, again, in, um, <laughs> I took a class in college on Roman religion and the, the, t the professor was not a uh, Christian. And um, uh, Christianity came toward the end of the course. So we started with old pagan ideas and then the mystery religions come in because the Roman army is all over the place by the first century and bringing back all these interesting cults from Egypt and Persia and places like that. And uh, so Christianity comes into the Roman Empire and uh, the professor's uh, uh, summary of the Christian faith was this. Yeah, so there was this Jewish preacher who went up to Jerusalem and made a fuss in the temple and they put him to death. And some people said he was alive. So that's Christianity. <laughs> and uh, so this is the story, right? Here we are. And it's a pretty shocking thing to do in a way, you know. Uh, 
We should bear in mind that uh, people came to the temple to offer sacrifice and they often couldn't bring their animals that needed to be sacrificed from wherever they were coming because, uh, you know, the Holy Land was a big place and if you wanted to offer a big sacrifice, say, of a bull, you didn't want to have to transport the bull all the way from Galilee, for example. So what you could do is they, they had a, a storage of different animals. And then the other problem was in the ancient world, you had many different types of coinage. And uh, in particular, in everyday life, probably most Jews used Roman coinage because the Romans were governing the province and that was the currency. But technically they weren't supposed to use it because it had the image of Caesar on it. And so since the Jews were not supposed to use images, um, they had their own coinage, but they had to change it when they got to the temple. So they couldn't use Roman coinage for the, the sacrifices. That would be a sacrilege. So they would change it for... Uh, local currency of some kind or other. So that's why you needed money changers there. And at the same time, this, uh, there, there is in, in some sense or other a kind of uh, compromise with uh, worldly order that our Lord is clearing out here and uh, giving a sign that there's going to be a, a new and purified temple. Uh, so... And the zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote from Psalm 69. Uh, The Jews then said to him, what sign have you to show us for doing this? Uh, A couple things about this. First thing is when the Jews are referred to in John's gospel, this is a a, a bit of a touchy issue. Um, It can mean several different things. It can mean the Jewish people as a whole, uh, but frequently it means the authorities. Okay, so since we're at the temple, I think it's fair to, to assume that this would be uh, persons from the priestly class who are officiating at the sacrifices. And, you know, I think it makes sense that they would take exception to this behavior. Say, uh, okay, so obviously you're a prophet. This is the kind of thing a prophet would do. Show us a sign so that we know who you are, right? Uh, so... Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. So we we should be careful not to underestimate the importance of temple symbolism in the gospels and and in Paul's letters, by the way. Um, I'm partisan to that because my my master's thesis was about cultic imagery in Paul. (laughs) But um, uh, I think it, it's, it's tempting to, uh, again, a, a kind of a modern understanding of the origins of Christianity puts the origins of the liturgy in the synagogue. Uh, but in, in fact, in my opinion and, and in other scholarship, the, our, uh, the mass, the liturgy, its roots are in the temple. And it's understood that, that our Lord's death is, a, is an actual sacrifice, okay? Uh, and, and it's the institution of a new temple. Uh, it's the temple of his body. So uh, we become the living stones of this temple in our baptism when we become part of Christ's body. And we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. The, the liturgy that we do in the church helps us to see in symbols who we are and what's going on, what God is doing around us. Um, but the temple, in fact, is Christ and not, and not the literal building. 
Though the building itself, again, is, is Christ in a certain sense. You know, this is one of the reasons why uh, churches are traditionally built in the form of a cross. Because, and then the, the priests, then there's the, the church kind of sectioned off. You have the, the priests and deacons in the sanctuary. You have the monks or nuns in the choir. And then you have the laity. And then you have the, the penitents. And then you have the non-baptized. And, and there's sort of these, it's the, you know, the head and the heart and then the body. And then the, the person's sort of yearning to become part of the body outside the church. Um, so, uh, when the, the reply comes that it's taken 46 years to build the temple, uh, this is kind of interesting because uh, trying to figure out the actual dates of our Lord's ministry and life um, faced many complications because in the ancient world there was no single calendar. And there were different ways of reckoning from this or that. Uh, one of the difficulties is, for instance, we would say that um, 2007 or 2008 is 10 years ago. We would take 2018 and subtract 2008 and get 10. Uh, but in the ancient world, uh, they may well have said it was 12 years ago because they would count, or 11 years ago because they'd count both this year and 2008. Okay. We're like, this is the 11th year since 2008, they would say. Okay, so, so it's difficult to sort of know. And when, when our Lord says, you know, on the third day, I will raise it up. Uh, you know, if you count from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, from our reckoning, you only get two, <laughs> right? But it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so it's actually the third day. Um, it's just that we, but anyway, if you're trying to date things, if you're a historian and you're trying to date things in the ancient world, it's very difficult. However, Josephus tells us that the, uh, the temple was begun in what seems to be 18 BC or so. So this means that this discussion takes place in the year 28. If so, just thought you might be interested. Um, I find these things kind of interesting myself. Um, and notice that the sign that our Lord promises is one that's going to happen in the future. He doesn't actually work uh, a marvel of a sign. There is a sign in the sense that he turns over the, the money changers' tables and drives everybody out. Um, the prophets would have worked signs like that. Though they might not have called them signs. They would have, in Hebrew, they would have called them things or words. Um, uh, the, the word... Davar in Hebrew both means word and thing. And so when a prophet does a davar, it's a thing that signifies, again, it speaks something or other. Um, so, uh, but the, the true sign is going to be the crucifixion and the resurrection. So when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Um, so they believe the scripture. This is interesting. Uh, <clears throat> Hosea, again, I've mentioned already once, um, mentions that uh, the Lord, uh, after three days, will raise up the people from the dead, as it were. Okay, And uh, so this is almost certainly the background of this statement that they believe the scriptures. They remembered that Hosea said that God promised to raise them up after three days. Okay. Uh, so, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But 
great line here. Jesus did not trust himself to them uh, because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what was in man. Um, uh, I, I, I find a very beautiful uh, thing that uh, you know, our Lord didn't need testimony to anybody. He already knew what was going on in everybody's hearts around him. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's important to take this in the right way. It's, it's not that, you know, God sort of spies on us or something, but he knows us from inside, you know. Uh, he, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And we're only afraid to have people look inside us because uh, uh, we, we don't love ourselves as much as God loves us. <laughs> and we're afraid that if, you know, sort of the reality of who we are were known, that uh, we might not be likable to some people or other. Uh, but, but God is quite at home, as, as Father Brendan said this morning, being present to all creation, all places. And uh, so our Lord, uh, he, he can just be himself around everybody. He's, he's, um, he, he doesn't have to try to figure out whether people are on his side. <laughs> um, as it turns out, you know, in the end, nobody's on his side anyway. So <laughs> uh, he, he's like uh, an ant, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the, when the hobbits discover a tree bird, the tree beard, they ask him, uh, you know, are you on our side or on Sauron's side? And he says, oh, I'm not sure I'm on anyone's side because I'm not sure anyone's on my side, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Okay, um, I'll just introduce Nicodemus and we'll pick this up next time. Uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Okay, so this is, again, there's, there's so much to unpack here. What does it mean that he comes by night? Well, first of all, probably it's not what a Pharisee would normally do. The Pharisees don't want to be seen associating with this itinerant preacher from Galilee, you know, um, and especially when it goes around upsetting the temple sacrifices. Like, okay, sure, you, you, um, you know, today again, uh, lots and lots of uh, contemporary scholars of the Bible will want to present Jesus as just this great teacher, right? And, uh, well, actually, he does things like go into the temple and make a mess. <laughs> so it's, it's a little, he's a little more controversial than just somebody who was misunderstood because he was just trying to teach everybody how much they're loved. He, he did prophetic signs and this made him a dangerous sort of person because he challenged the political structure of the time in, in a very uh, forward way. So Nicodemus being a part of that class, I mentioned uh, he's almost certainly a priest, uh, though because um, uh, Jesus will later say he's a teacher of Israel. And uh, Malachi speaks of the priests as being the teachers of, of Israel. They had this job. And I think also in Kings, you get this, that Josiah sends out the priests to teach everybody um, not to uh, sacrifice to idols, for example. So um, he comes at night because it's a little safer. But also there's, night has an important symbolism in John's gospel in that it symbolizes ignorance an inability to see what's going on and understand it. And Nicodemus really suffers from this blindness. Um, why, we can speculate on, but the, the basic difficulty, you're going to see everything that our Lord says, Nicodemus misunderstands. <laughs> um, though the good news is that at the very end, Nicodemus comes back and buries him. So uh, he, he 
finds it in himself at least to uh, be a disciple to that extent. Um, so, um, yeah, I'll just finish it off with the, the very first thing our Lord says. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. See, the people who don't know who Jesus is always call him a teacher. <laughs> the ones who know who he is call him Lord and Master. Okay, so the rich young man, when he comes up to Jesus, he says, oh, ma- uh, teacher, right? And uh, so, uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this word anew, you, you might know this, uh, the Greek word is anothen. And this is um, an adverb that can have two different meanings. It can mean anew or again, or it can mean from above, okay? Or down from above, as it were. So our Lord is saying either you must be born again, or he's saying you must be born from above, um, and keep in mind that in the prologue, we, this was already talked about. Um, where is it now? We say this every day. I should be able to find it really quick. <laughs> um, yeah. So to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so to be born of God, to be born from above, to be born from a different place than this world. Uh, so, uh, but for most of us who were born in this world, by the usual means, this requires a second birth. So it means being born again, right? But Nicodemus doesn't understand it because he only hears the again part. He doesn't hear the above part, right? Um, and uh, so I'll tell you what, I'll stop there for now, just in case there are any questions you have. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when you were talking about the length of the ministry of Jesus, I do remember like, like, it's not pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and we had a very interesting talk uh-huh. as uh-huh. a guy who said something that was like, I, do, I know nothing about Christianity. Uh-huh. But one of the things that he said is because of the word rabbi was used to a certain age of people and then mm-hmm. the dating of the conversations that probably the ministry of Jesus could have like at least 10 or 12 years. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did you know more like what are the like, discussions about the land of the ministry? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, well, as I, as I say, the, the fathers of the church sort of putting all the different elements together <clears throat> and trying to harmonize them usually came up with three years. However, in chapter eight of John's gospel, uh, um, our Lord talks about uh, having seen Abraham or Abraham saw him. And the response of those with him is to say, but you're not even 50 years old yet. Well, if he's only 33 or whatever, yeah, of course he's not 50. So why would they say 50? And so some people speculate, well, you know, maybe he was actually older uh, at this point. Maybe he's in his 40s by then, in which case maybe Luke says his ministry starts when he's 30. So maybe he, his ministry was 12 years. You know? um, none, none of the gospels specify his preaching took this long. Uh, and as I tried to indicate when I spoke about Mark, I think Mark is, he's telling a story and he's making it very exciting. So things happen really fast. And 
um, the whole point of it is to get to the crucifixion. That's the really important thing. In all the Gospels, the important thing is that uh, the Son of God became man and was crucified. How long it took to get there, we have varying and, and hard to harmonize indications. It's really hard to say. Um, though the other difficulty with this is when we get to the Acts of the Apostles and you look at the ministry of Paul, we get some pretty close dating on that because um, he visits different places and it says like, you know, the proconsul was here at this time and we have <coughs> records of these things. So Paul's conversion almost certainly happens around 38 or 39 AD, okay? Um, the earliest Jesus' birth could have been is maybe 6 BC. So if it's two years after the crucifixion resurrection, again, maybe you can make out our Lord to be 40, 43, maybe. Um, but that's, you know, these are very speculative things, but it's, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. The symbols and signs. Yeah. Yeah, uh, right on the podium. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So I know what the cross means. <laughs> yeah. The, it looks like a sun, maybe the earth, and then another sun, or? Uh, it's two stars. Oh, two stars. Yeah. And uh, as, as I understand it, the one of them stands for Our Lady, who is the patroness of our order. Uh, the other one uh, stands for the eight beatitudes. This is the Chicago River that indicates that we're in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. And as uh, our friend Peter Dabowski likes to say, we have our explanation for the stars, but for him, it's the Cubs and the White Sox. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I wanted to sh share a story since we were talking sure. about Lazarus. I uh -huh. have a, uh, Lazarus, excuse me. I have a, a young friend whose name is Timothy who suffered a, a heroin overdose in the last couple of weeks. And he actually was without a heartbeat for 15 minutes and has returned. And I said, Timothy, what, what have you experienced? What is the message of this? And he said, the sign is that God is not done with me. Uh -huh. that, that's yeah. what he's telling everybody. He says, I have work to do. Yeah, yeah. And I found that very interesting. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple of books on, on these uh, near-death or after-death experiences. Um, and they're quite interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I personally will say I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic about how to interpret them, but you hear this a lot that people will actually sort of go in, they'll be dying, and they'll have a vision of a family member or someone else or an angel or something that comes and says, we, we, we're not ready for you yet. You have to go back. There's something you need to fi finish. And then they, they come back, they're resuscitated. <laughs> so that's actually a, a, an attested experience. Yeah. Sure. So. I know St. John's Tuesday uh, uh, is uh, December 27th. It is. That's right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy birthday to you. So. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Um, St. Stephen's feast day is the day before. And uh, what I find really interesting each year is that both of these guys in their stories see heaven open. Uh, so Stephen, as he's being stoned, he looks up and he sees heaven open and he sees uh, the, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Uh, John, again, uh, we get the name John both from the Synoptic Gospels but also from Revelation where he names himself as John. And again, there's one tradition that says he's the same person as the beloved disciple. And he says in chapter two that he had a vision and the heavens opened and he saw the throne of God, right? And uh, so Christmas 
Again, the whole Christmas mystery is about the things we thought we knew revealing something new and grander behind them. The heavens opening up, uh, the, the water jugs becoming wine. You know, there's this sense in which we're peering into the very reality of things because of God's grace. Uh, so John and, and Stephen both Two days in a row, we, we, we have these antiphons that say, oh, blessed is the one for whom the heavens are opened. <laughs> so, yeah, one more question over here. Um, uh, just a minor thing. Yeah. St. Anthony's feast day is the 17th? Or the 17th. 17th. Yeah, this week. This week. Mm-hmm. Wednesday. Yeah. And Morris and Placid are tomorrow, the disciples of St. Benedict. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we'll just press on in chapter three next time. God willing. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen.